0: All right, good morning again. Go ahead and navigate there to John chapter 21. Today we finish our, I think, about 52-week study in the book of John, so just about a year to get through it. It's been a blessing to me, and I hope to you as well. Our topic, Jesus gives fishermen a preview of what it is going to be like to be his fishers of men. The title of the message, You're Going to Need a Bigger Net. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And, and Lord, it is an opportunity. It's a chance for us to quiet our hearts, to be grateful and thankful, Lord, this season that, uh, in a sense, Lord, you cast your net out and caught us brought us into your kingdom, Lord, caused us to be born again, filled with your spirit. And now, uh, Lord, we go out and try to fish for men as well. I pray, Lord, as we work through these texts, Lord, the end of the gospel, that it would be fresh and refreshing, that we would learn a lot about you and your love for us and mankind. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. My uncle Dan Romanello was an accomplished fisherman. In his retirement, he and my aunt Philomena lived in a cabin near Big Bear Lake. Uncle Dan had a boat docked there, ready to set out at a moment's notice. He loved to do winter fishing and I would sometimes uh, go with him. I was probably eight, nine years old. His vocabulary did not include the word limit. He knew nothing about limits. 10 fish was the limit fish and game set. From trout number 11 on, the catch was stuffed into seat cushions. Someday I'll tell you about the time I became hypothermic uh, during one of these all-day fishing trips. Uh, Of course, when Uncle Dan realized that I couldn't move, uh, he up-anchored and we headed urgently into shore, although, as I recall, he was still trolling uh, as as I was uh, dying. Now, the Apostle John saw fit to close his gospel by telling essentially a fish story. After toiling all night, the disciples came up empty. From shore, Jesus told them to drop their nets on the other side of the boat it resulted in a staggering catch. Nearly four years prior, the Lord had called fishermen to follow him, saying, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The time had come for them to embark upon that calling. Spoiler alert, they would simultaneously be shepherds. Jesus will tell Peter, Feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. The two professions perfectly communicate our mission during the church age as we wait for the coming of Jesus. Fishers of men evangelize unbelievers. Shepherds nurture the believers, equipping and edifying them to themselves go out as fishers of men. And so uh, you can see yourself towards any non-believer as a fisher of men and to any believer as one in the flock of God. Uh, shepherding one another, as it were. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, grace, not gear, is needed to fish for men. And number two, brokenness, not boasting, is needed to shepherd men. Let's uh, take a look at our fishing in verses 1 through 11. Hooper arrived in the Flicka. It was outfitted with every modern gadget, all the appropriate gear that you would expect of an oceanographic research vessel. To eliminate Jaws, however, the Amity City Council hired Quint. His boat, the orca, well, let's just say it was a little bit dilapidated. It it was the worst for wear, barely seaworthy. As we go through this morning, one thing to note, Jesus seems to prefer orcas to flickas when it comes to uh, who he's dealing with. Uh, He he doesn't need our gear. He doesn't need our uh, intelligence. He doesn't need our wealth. Uh, There's nothing that Lord really needs from us except our obedience. And he seems to prefer to work with broken down, dilapidated individuals whose very uh, existence gives him the glory uh, as they minister for him. And so keep that in mind. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Places get renamed 1963, Cape Canaveral was renamed Cape Kennedy. Ten years later, Floridians changed it back. The Sea of Galilee was called the Sea of Tiberias by Romans to honor their emperor, but it didn't really catch on. This is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus told the disciples that after being raised from the dead, he would go before them to Galilee, and they were there waiting. So score one for these guys. Verse 2, Simon Peter Thomas called twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Why only these seven? Well, we're not told. We do recall that John's writing style involves groups of seven. He he has a ton of them throughout uh, his writing. Uh, It's just something that he does, and it's fun for us to discover them. Uh, The reason there were only these seven, I mean, this morning, probably not everybody who goes to our church is here, right? And, and so if we were writing the Bible, we'd say, well, these, you know, 75 or 200, well, what about the rest of the people? I don't know. We're just reporting on who's there. So I don't think there's any, anything special about the ones that are gone. Verse 3, then Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. <laughs> were they right to put out the gone fishing sign? A lot of times people argue about this, saying that they should have just waited on the Lord, that they were going back to their old professions. But uh, why not fish? They needed to eat. They needed to sustain themselves while they were waiting for the Lord. They were where the Lord told them to go, waiting for him. All they knew how to do was fish, and so they fished. More importantly, underline, that night they caught nothing. These guys were fishermen by trade, and the Sea of Galilee was teeming with fish, Their total inability to catch even one fish illustrates the need to depend upon God when they go man fishing. And so this is more than just discouraging for a professional fisherman. This is a, you know, one of them should have said, hey, I think something's going on here. We didn't even get weeds, Uh, you know, nothing weird is even in our net, we got nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I've officiated more than a few open casket funerals. In some cases, and I don't mean this to be facetious or funny, I do not recognize the individual in the casket. Uh, I don't know if it's good or bad embalming, uh, but one way or the other, I think, wow, that, that just doesn't look like the individual I remember. And uh, so, just bear that in mind. This is more of an old school thing, but uh, and if I say this and it offends you, I don't mean to offend you. But there, there, a lot of people think small children need to see the dead body to be sure that the person is actually dead. This Aunt Phil, she's dead. She's dead. Do you see her? She's dead. Kiss her. Yeah. Not for me, but, you know, do, hey, go for it. Maybe uh, maybe it works in your life, or maybe you need counseling. But anyway, so they just didn't recognize the Lord. Plus, what, what does a resurrected man look like? Uh, you know, I mean, he, he looked a little bit different than he had. And then, two, the Lord liked to mess with his disciples by not revealing himself until he'd been there for a while. And I, I can only wonder how many times they went around saying, hey, is that guy, is that Jesus I, that guy, that guy looks like a hobo there. I bet he's Jesus. Remember, he was a gardener in, you know, uh, after the tomb was opened. And so it mean, just, just kind of a mind-blowing thing when you think about it. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. Children can be translated friends. Jesus asked them what you ask any fisherman, did you catch anything? Or how's the fishing? Verse 6, and he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, I've been fishing before, or I don't know if I call it fishing. Uh, casting, I go casting a lot, and uh, not a very good fisherman. But I know the etiquette. If you're passing by another fisherman, you say, "Hey, any any bites? Any got anything?" If they lift up, you know, a chain of fish, then you're liable to listen to them, right? You say, "Well, how'd you get those guys?" Marshmallows. They're, they're biting on marshmallows today or Velveeta. <laughs> they're lying to you, you know that and stuff. My dad used to say, we'd never catch anything. Me and my dad, when we'd go fishing, all these other people were catching stuff. Yeah, they got a special oil that comes from, you know. I go, can't we get that oil, dad? He goes, no, you gotta, it's a secret oil. And uh, But, you know, if somebody holds up a chain of fish, oh, yeah. I'm, but Jesus just said, hey, he's some guy on the shore saying, you catch anything? No, yeah, cast your net on the other side of the boat which was a stupid thing to say. And uh, you want to say back, where's your fish, buddy? You know, I mean, where's your boat? What have you been up to? But, um, you know, they did it. He said to them, cast the net and you'll find some. The remains of a first century fishing boat were not too long ago discovered in the mud of the Sea of Galilee. It's 26 foot long and seven and a half foot wide. I should have said feet, but I said foot both times, so you think that I know what I was talking about. The right side of the boat was not far enough away to matter. So I got the net, and seven feet is like right there. I mean, it's, it's really, there's no fish hiding on the right side of the boat, saying, man, I hope that net doesn't come our way. You know, it's it just a dumb thing to say, but it worked. They didn't know it was Jesus, but we do, and so the lesson is simple. Without the direction of Jesus, there's no catch. With his direction, following his direction, obeying the Lord, there is a great catch, an impossible catch. Jesus must lead you to your spiritual fishing holes. Once there, you depend upon his guidance and direction, gifts and empowering. Verse 6, he said to them, "Cast it on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. You know, Jesus was quite the fisherman. In the Gospel of Luke, the disciples follow his instruction, and their catch was so great on another occasion that it almost sunk two fishing boats. In Matthew, Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish that would have a coin in its mouth so that they could pay the temple tax. Now, that's fishing. What is that, Dad? It's a rainbow trout, but it's also got a Silver dollar in its mouth, so score that. I, that's never happened. I've tried to fool around like that with the kids, but I, I'm not fast enough. But anyway, and then Jesus twice multiplied dead fish to feed the multitudes. I'm telling you, this guy was a master fisherman to say nothing about the fishing of men that he was doing in his three and a half year ministry. Verse 7 Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're not told why he had this nickname. It's true that John was uh, part of a sort of an inner circle, the commentators like to call it an inner circle of Peter, James, and John that oftentimes went to ministries with Jesus that the others didn't go to, but Uh, To say that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved, I I just, all of a sudden, I found myself singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? And so it's not to say that he doesn't love me. I am the disciple Jesus loved. So are you if you're a Christian. Uh, You know, it's not unique to John. Uh, For example, David, the man after God's own heart. Is he the only man uh, out of billions of Christians? After God's own heart? No, but this was something that would most describe him. Uh, and so the Lord loves us all. We are all the disciples that Jesus loves. Uh, and, and each of us also has a further breakdown uh, of some, some kind of an endearing uh, nickname or name from the Lord. And, and one day we'll know what that is. We're uh, hinted at in the book of the Revelation that we'll get a new name. And it'll be appropriate to uh, who Jesus knows you really are. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, that's 100 yards, dragging the net with fish. The Lord could disappear as fast as he appeared. Peter may have thought that he could outswim the boat. He wanted to get to shore as quickly as possible. Uh, Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. This is the first boat and breakfast. uh, I'm sure this caught on along the shore. Jesus was about to commission them to be fishers of men and spiritual shepherds. We would understand it in a sense like an ordination ceremony or a commissioning of missionaries to send them out. And it's not exaggerating to say this is one of the most important breakfast meetings of all time because the Lord was going to send out these seven and the guys that weren't there, the 11, and they would choose one more, Matthias in the New Testament. And they would literally go out and turn the world upside down with the gospel. You notice here there is no fanfare, there are no guest speakers, there are no certificates, there's no wallet cards, nothing's given them. It's, it's all very casual over breakfast. Uh, here's a way I understand it, having lived in the valley for a long time, there was no tri-tip. <laughs> Anything important. Anything important has to have tri-tip, right? How many tri-tip dinners have you been to in Kings County or in Fresno County? Uh, because, and you know what? I'm not making fun of that. I mean, when I, when I came to uh, Hanford from Southern California when I was 30 years old, I thought, what is tri-tip? People are you, you don't know what tri-tip is? Uh, no. I know what bone is, but, you know, and so, and, and so you're brought into the cult of the tri-tip, right? <laughs> And everybody has a way of cooking tri-tip. And, and I don't know how many arguments I've heard between people about how to cook tri-tip. It's, it's, it's fun. And so none of that. There was nothing going on like Jesus said, hey, guys, I'm going to do a miracle. We're going to eat some fish, and then you guys are going to go out and embark on your martyrdom uh, and stuff. It's super important, but it's, it's, it's low key. I think sometimes we make too big a deal of things. You know, things are a big deal. But we want to be careful not to, not to you know, congratulate people the way we do in the world. Uh, we want Jesus to get the glory. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and, I'm going to say, dragged the net to land. Is it dragged or drugged? Would he have drugged, or you know, not drugged, but he might have done it drugged, I don't know. But anyway, he brought this gear up and, and uh, 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. This number, 153, is it significant? Probably, but most of the explanations are allegorical nonsense. Uh, the number itself doesn't seem to mean anything. However, there's an interesting mathematical fact. If you have a math-like brain, you might follow what I'm gonna say next. I can't follow it, but it's true. Okay, this is, so this guy named Pythagoras, remember Pythagoras? You, how can you forget the Pythagorean theorem? And that's all you had to do to, to get out of geometry is be able to say that five times. <laughs> so Pythagoras calculated that 153 is the denominator of the closest known fraction to the square root of three, which is a fraction is presented as 265 over 153. So what? Well, this is the ratio of a fish shape drawn between two overlapping circles which are centered on each other's circumference. Again, I don't quite understand that, but you can go online, look up Pythagoras and this kind of thing, and you can see this diagram. And when you do, you're gonna say, that looks just like the ichthus, the Christian fish, because essentially it it is what it is. And uh, first century Christians would use that symbol. You've seen it on people's bumper stickers and on the back of cars. It's the Christian fish. Everybody knows what it is. And Pythagoras had it down. He says, yeah, hey, the number 153 has to do with that. If that's, I don't know if that's what John had in mind or what the numerology is, but it's an uh, interesting thing to talk about. Employing tried and true gear and methods, drawing from years of experience in a lake teeming with fish, with strong nets, knowing all the fishing holes, toiling all night, they caught absolutely nothing. Nothing. Depending upon the Lord, in just a few minutes, they limited out with a catch that almost broke their net. Let's not overlook the effort Peter made to get to the Lord and to bring in the catch. They were 100 yards out when Peter put on his outer garment and jumped in. Now that itself should strike you as a little strange, right? Who puts on a garment to jump in the water and swim? If somebody says to you, my child just fell in the pool and he doesn't he's not a good swimmer. You don't say, "Hang on while I get my jacket, put my shoes on, and my hat is around here somewhere and then I'll jump in and see what I can do." If anything, I mean I've seen firemen and police officers, you know, who, "Hey, we let's get some gear off. I don't want to jump in with my gun belt, you know, and stuff, but they get they go, they jump in and stuff." And so nobody puts gear on in that kind of a situation. So we're into something here. If you are a strong swimmer, you might not think 100 yards is very challenging. The length of a pool is challenging to me, but you know, some people, oh, 100 yards, that's not that bad. But in addition to being fully clothed, Peter had been toiling hard all night. This was an open water swim in a lake. On shore, Peter then drug or dragged this net alone. Apparently, six or six disciples couldn't get it in, and so Jesus flag or Peter flags them up and says, "I'll do it." And and it wasn't a show of strength. This wasn't festivus, you know. But it was it was part of the illustration that we're supposed to get that Peter exerted uh, everything. He was full throttle. Uh, he definitely was out there. So how does this fit with total dependence on Jesus? Well, it fits perfectly it's part of what we're talking about. Uh, One of the commentators, a guy named Four Lines explains, "'It is a misunderstanding of scripture "'for us to reduce ourselves to instruments for God "'to use or channels for God to work through.'" These metaphors are all right if we do not press them too far. When we press them to the point that we are to passively yield ourselves to God with the idea that we do nothing and let God use us like puppets, we're overlooking the truth That God has made us persons and treats us accordingly in his dealings with us. And so we're talking about total and complete dependence on the Lord. But we're not talking about just sitting around being a vessel or a conduit if God should ever want to use you. No, we're to be like Peter and to say, hey, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to swim 100 yards with all of my, you know, clothing on. I'm going to, uh, you know, I don't care that I worked all night. Nothing's going to get me. I, I have to do this for the Lord. And so we are both dependent on the Lord and independent. Our independence is subordinate but not passive. We're told in the Bible to run the race, to press forward, to work while there is still time. We are to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so it's not a 50-50 thing. It's not, you know, God does some and I do some. God does everything in terms of empowering and leading and guiding and and all of that. But we are obedient to that. We submit to that. We're subordinate to that. We go for it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so that's what is being illustrated here. Uh, And it's a beautiful illustration coming on the heels of these guys going out into the world and sharing the gospel are you coming up empty in some part of your life maybe you can't get victory over sin maybe your relationships are tanked could be that you are casting your net for wisdom and guidance on the wrong side figuratively speaking speaking a lot of times we look to the world for our help uh, or, or the you know the Christianized world. You know, we think, oh, I need, I need professional help. I need this kind of help. I need that kind of help. All along, Jesus has, you know, uh, given you the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's pretty powerful. He's pretty knowledgeable. He's pretty wonderful. He's pretty comforting. Uh, and so sometimes we're looking in the wrong place. And so a lot of times when people say, I just can't get victory, well, I, I think, well, maybe your net's on the left side of the boat, as it were. Maybe you're tossing it in using your own wisdom, seeking your own solutions, or you have a solution in mind and the Lord's not bringing that. Try going God's way. God's way isn't always easy, and it's certainly going to make you seem like a fool at some point or points in your life. The foolish uh, man is the man God uses. The orca is the man and woman God uses. And so sometimes people don't go God's way because it seems foolish. They don't want to be made fun of. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be... You know, and that kind of a thing. Uh, this is a great illustration. You want to depend on yourself, you're going to catch nothing. You're going to come up with empty nets all the time. Depend on the Lord, go his way. He's going to give you the bounty you seek. Brokenness, not boasting, is needed to shepherd men. Charles Spurgeon said this, This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. As I said, that's a quote from Spurgeon, but it sounds like something Peter could say. His grief comes up in his after-breakfast talk with Jesus, and so let's pick it up in verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Again, You have to remember, I mean, they knew it was the Lord, but they wondered if it really was because he's a resurrected man that kind of pops in and out. He loved the pop-in. Disciples probably alternated between thinking they saw him everywhere and thinking they wouldn't see him again. Verse 13, then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. Now, this is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The resurrected God-man remains a servant, But Jesus isn't waiting on us hand and foot. He serves us by enabling us to walk in obedience to serve him. I think that makes sense. And and so it's not that he's a servant, we're a servant. We serve him. He's our Lord and master. But his service to us is to have provided everything we need for life and godliness to live the Christian life. Verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Well, then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It will help if we eliminate a few things first, because this is kind of a worked over passage. People have a hard time getting a handle on it. And so let's eliminate a couple of things. Number one, this is not Peter being forgiven and restored after his three denials. Jesus previously appeared privately to Peter, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:5, And so this isn't the time when he is confessing his denials as sin and receiving forgiveness from the Lord. That's already been done. Uh, second thing, the Lord cannot be reminding Peter of his sin. When the Lord forgives you your sin, it is far away as the east is from the west. He's not going to keep bringing it up to you uh, and holding it over you, the way you know, we sometimes do with people. You know, if we wanna you know, uh, kind of lord over them. And so that's not what's happening. And third, the Lord and Peter use two different words for love, but it turns out that it's of no consequence because they can be used interchangeably. Language scholars say, and I quote, in John's gospel, this is an example of synonymous usage as both agape and phileo are used for the father's love for the son, for the father's love for the saints, and Jesus' love for Lazarus. And so agape is that, that, you know, normally the pinnacle of love, the love of God, impossible unless you're born again, but once you're born again, you can love the way God loves. And then phileo is a brotherly love, a relationship love, a family love, that kind of thing. Uh, but it says here that, the you know john uses them interchangeably he'll say the father agape is the saints the father phileo is the saints the father agape is the son he phileo is the son okay and so it is a mistake to think that the different bible words for love are in competition with each other i've oftentimes heard uh, so i never can remember because i'm losing my mind but uh, you've got agape and phileo and i think stergo I forget what stergo love is. And then you've got eros, right? And there's a bunch of other ones too. They never talk. And I always hear people always say, and eros, that's the bad love, you know, or that's the lowest love, you know? And so you start to think, well, this is love on a ladder, right? I've got to get up from eros onto sterge somehow, whatever that means. And then I progress into phileo. And if I'm saved, I get agape. These are just different expressions of love. And God agapes you and he phileos you. And I like that because he uh, does the same to me. And so this isn't a competition of love. The three questions obviously associate with Peter's denials. And he remained grieved when he remembered them. Let's hear that quote from Spurgeon again. This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. Forgiven and restored, commissioned and sent out, Peter would never forget his denials that had grieved the Lord. Not in a way that would hinder his serving, not in a way where he, you know, somebody would say to him, well, you need to forgive yourself first, nothing like that. But hey, I mean, just quite honestly, without going back and thinking about it, I know that there's things in my life that grieved the Lord uh, that I wish I had never done. And, you know, has he forgiven? Sure, absolutely. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I'd be incarcerated or I'd be dead or, you know, I wouldn't be a Christian. Uh, But all of us have that in our lives. And it's not, you know, it's not to weigh us down, but to spur us on. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, forget those things which are behind. Reach forward to those things which are ahead. And so you might be thinking, well, Gene, why, why don't we just forget that? Well, because Paul also remained grieved by his persecution of Christians. He frequently referred to the fact that he used to murder Christians. And so it didn't stop him. He didn't think he was doing penance for that. He wasn't earning salvation for that. That had been forgiven, but it was part of who Paul was. And and it explains a lot of things about Paul. Paul at one point in the book of Romans says, "If if all Israel could be saved, I would be damned. I would would be willing to take the place of all Israel. And, And so, you know, Paul had some deep issues about what he had done in persecuting different folks. Peter was a broken person who had been restored by the Lord. It would encourage him to be a more nurturing shepherd, to be an overseer and not an overlord. Most assuredly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter would receive the promise of the spirit on the day of Pentecost. He would enjoy a great catch of men on that day. And he'd go on to shepherd those who were saved. He would go on to open the door to salvation to the uh, Gentiles. And so he uh, had a, a wonderful, wonderful ministry ahead of him. Jesus shared his foreknowledge of Peter's future. He was describing Peter being crucified as a martyr. Church history does record that uh, Peter was crucified, but that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to die the same way that Jesus did. And so he went out to his martyrdom. Now notice Jesus said, when you are old, Peter would be around for a while. Jesus has not shared his foresight of my life, I don't know how long I'll be around. You probably don't know how long you'll be around, but you know the Lord, and he knows how long you'll be around. He has foresight and is uh, ruling and reigning over your life. And, you know, I say, well, Peter, when you're old, when you're old, changes, doesn't it? When I first came here, I thought old was 40. I said that in the message once. I said, this older woman, she was 40. Oh, man, did I hear it. <laughs> Woo! Uh, now I'm 67, I think, that's not old, that's not old. My body is old, but my mind is the mind of an infant. Uh, verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, please just call yourself John, uh, but who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is this one who betrays you? They were walking, and John was politely hanging back because he could hear that this was between Peter and his Lord. Peter and John shared a special relationship. Uh, You'll see them often ministering together. Even after this in the book of Acts, uh, the two of them going into the temple when they see the man born lame, and uh, they heal him. Peter couldn't help wondering what was going to happen to John. And seeing him, he said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? We assume Peter was asking out of some jealousy or rivalry, but why not out of love for John to give him a glimpse of his future? Hey, Lord, you told me what's happening with me. How about John? Are we going to be able to work together? Is he going to die soon or later? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't compare yourself to other believers. Don't do it to feel sorry for yourself or superior to them. A servant always answers to his own master, not to other servants. A lot of times, just when I'm about to analyze a situation uh, involving another believer, I'll stop and I'll think, well, if they're not in sin, maybe they're just immature or maybe they know something we don't know, but, you know, they, the Lord is the one that needs to judge them uh, and, and you know, deal with that. I mean, we're not dealing with sin or anything like that. I mean, we're just dealing with behavior. Some say, well, you should have done this. I don't know that I can say that in many occasions because... I am a servant, they are a servant, we answer to our master. Then the saying went out among the brethren, verse 23, that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Christians interpreted Jesus' words to mean John would not die until he returned. It was true, actually, but not in the way they thought. As an old man in his 90s, John would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ where he was what transported to heaven and where he saw what the return of Jesus Christ and so there is a sense in which a poetic sense in which a romantic sense almost in which this uh, that John did not see die until he saw the Lord in his coming but it wasn't the way they thought verse 24 and 5 this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We read the Bible literally, but not like Drax, the destroyer. In the MCU, Drax is from a race that takes everything absolutely literally. And so if you say to him, that just went right over your head, he would say, it did not, I would catch it. Nothing goes over my head. And so he doesn't understand uh, how to use figures of speech or idioms or hyperbole. John obviously using hyperbole here at the end to express the extent of God's love for mankind. Basically, he's saying if it took enough miracles and works to, to fill the entire planet with books, God would have done it. This is enough. But God has an extravagant, wonderful love for the human race and draws them to himself. You've probably heard the expression by hook or by crook. The phrase came into usage with the translation of the New Testament by John Wycliffe in the 1300s. It's believed that it was derived from this scripture today. The hook is the fish hook. The crook is the shepherd's staff with the crook at the end. The hook and the crook symbolize evangelism and nurturing. Perhaps we should then adopt a version as a mission statement Calvary Hanford, by hook, then by crook. Amen?